Hello, welcome back. And before I start, I'm going to say this. We still have this WhatsApp community that you can find under the same name. If you look for communities on WhatsApp and type in talk ADHD with no space, T-A-L-K-A-D-H-D, you should find a community you can request to join. I'll put a link into it uh, on the, the notes of this podcast as well. What's happened last week is they've given us some really useful information about the topics they would like us to talk about the things they'd like to hear and that's what this week's is all about so this week the title of this podcast is what is good anyway what do we mean well what does good look like when we're talking about the process that we should expect to go through if we seek an assessment or a diagnosis for adhd um whether it's for us or our children, doesn't matter. What does good look like? How do we know that we're getting the right standard of assessment and information? And very importantly, what happens next? What does good look like after you've been told that, for example, yes, it's ADHD? So there is no better person really to ask this question to than somebody doing this day in, day out, year in, year out, which is why Andrew is the man. Uh, this is going to be fascinating, I think. This is one of those where there's lots of misconceptions. There's lots of people have their own opinion. And um, hopefully what we're able to do, Andrew, is, is clear some of that up, really. So have you got anything you want to say before we sort of dive into how we're going to approach this? No, just uh, nice to be back after a week off. Um, yes. Yes, it's, I, I think it's important to remember that we do this for free and um, this is about just putting that information out there. So sometimes our work priorities do take over and we do everything we can to get an episode out each week, but sometimes it's just not going to be possible. Um, yeah. And last week was one of those. Not bad after we, seven episodes. Here we are now, ready to go again. So... Right then. So ready to go again. And, and you've kindly shared uh, a document and I will share a link to it, which is actually um, sort of a, a consensus document called Assessments for Adult ADHD, What Makes Them Good Enough? Now, this is some, some very um, senior and well-respected folks within the ADHD world, I believe, coming together um, to, I don't know, what would you call it? Is it guidelines? Is it is it? It's it's a response to GPs saying what does an AD, what does a good ADHD assessment look like? And when when they say assessment, they say they they mean assessment report. Um, but this this um, document was sort of the, the the leading psychiatrist saying these are the sorts of things that you should look for. So it was published in a journal that is circulated around general practice. Um, so it was it was their attempt to say these are some signs that the assessment that you're reading is of a good quality and done by someone who knows what they're talking about. Is that to mitigate issues then, I assume? Is that, you know, in case a GP got a report and looked at it and went, mm, not sure about this? Well, yeah, it's to help help guide their understanding because a, a general a general practitioner is exactly that. They're a generalist. They don't they're, they're not a specialist, and they rely on what specialists tell them, um, and and the the regulation of those specialists to make sure that 
the information they're getting as GPs is reliable enough to support them in their work. Um, so right. often um, things that the thing that undermines a shared care agreement can be the quality of an assessment. If you've got a good quality assessment report, that adds weight to the the diagnosis and therefore the confidence in yes this is actually adhd and therefore it's right to prescribe something for adhd right but yeah now um it's interesting isn't it so the title of this document assessments for adult adhd what makes them good enough just to read the 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 first paragraph concerns have been raised in the media over the quality of assessments for adult attention deficit hyperactivity disorder adhd and the role of the private sector and it goes on it may not surprise anyone listening to hear that this was published in October of last year. And the reference point that it has for the media is, yes, the Panorama documentary. Now, I find that really interesting for a number of reasons. A, it's great to see that there was a response. I think that's phenomenal that it prompted a response to, to, to provide GPs with information about what good is. Interestingly for me, though, it, it automatically sort of answers a question that I had fired at me online post the documentary before we spoke about people suddenly perceiving that what was going on was there were some sort of backstreet clinics welcoming anyone and anyone who just fancied trying stimulant meds, doing some kind of a shoddy assessment and then writing a prescription for stimulant meds. and and. From the get-go, I thought, well, that makes no sense because there's laws against that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a regulated process and industry. That, that surely can't be happening. What this tells me is, no, the concern was over the quality and, and the differences in perhaps what assessments and assessment reports look like, not that they were being done, shall we say, um, fraudulently or, or given to people that, didn't meet the criteria so have i got that right am, am i on the right lines with that i think so you know the, the three clinics featured in panorama are doing what they do because they believe that, that what they do helps people with adhd right and and that was never called to question um but the way things are done really does impact on the quality of the response that you can give. Um, so it comes down to how the criteria are applied, how those diagnostic criteria are applied, and the 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 depth of exploration of of the experience that feeds an assessment. Um, right. So an assessment for ADHD is, is usually done under two classification systems. There's either the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, Revision yeah. 5, we're at now, that's the American version, and that tends to be what most of us use. It's what we use at Divergence, and it's what most clinicians will use. Um, there is also the International Classification of Diseases model, which mm -hmm. is slightly different, but over the years has become more closely aligned to DSM criteria to the point that they're, they're much the same um, where they weren't. Um, and, and I suppose that, that says something about the refining and understanding of, of what a diagnosis of ADHD actually means. Um, yeah. so, so that both of those manuals come with a list of symptoms and a list of other criteria that must be met in order to say, yes, this is ADHD. And it's possible 
Um, and, and we saw it on Panorama to go through those questions and say, are you forgetful? Yes. Okay. That's that, that one covered. That's one of 18 symptoms ticked. But that doesn't really get to the depth of what that means in someone's life. So what I'd like to do is, is go through what is being asked and why it's being asked. Not necessarily all 18 symptoms, because that's, that's something, you know, you can look up those 18 symptoms. Yeah. What a good assessment will do with those criteria, as opposed to just going through a tick box exercise of, yes, I've got that one. No, I had, I had that one in childhood. It's gone now. I've got that one now. And it was there in childhood. Um, so that there are complexities to how it's delivered. And I think that's, that's where you see a good ADHD assessment, where you get that more rich exploration of the experience of living with this rather than you know do you have purple toenails tick <laughs> not today um okay so 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 give me some examples then you know you you, you mentioned their forgetfulness and, and you know it's this thing everyone's a little bit ADHD, everyone's a little bit everyone at some point loses something are we talking about if you lose something more regularly than someone else and you reference that during an assessment, that might be a, oh, well, that seems like ADHD. Or it, does there, for you, need to be an extra element to that? It's not as straightforward as yes, saying yes, I, I lose things a lot. So there, there are nine symptoms of inattention, nine symptoms of hyperactivity, impulsivity. There's actually six hyperactive and three impulsive symptoms. Mm. Um, and that split becomes useful later on, but um, let's let's take the first one. So often fails to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes in schoolwork, at work, or during other activities. So in my assessments, I'm not going to say, do you make careless mistakes? That's not how I would go about it, because that actually is just creating a tick box. Mm. Yeah? I, yeah. I want to understand what your day is like. How, how do you go through your day and, and what happens and what, is, what are the, the things that go wrong in a day? And everybody has those. But by, by talking through that, we get a picture of these clusters of symptoms. I didn't always do it like that, Matt. So when I was first an ADHD specialist, I did rely more on almost a, a tick box exercise and when when i was teaching people in the nhs how to assess for adhd um i used to get students to almost like fill out a bingo card i would i would say oh, okay. here's, here's here's a list of, of symptoms if you hear that symptom in our conversation tick it off on your list to help people start to think about how the conversation and how i weave the conversation around those symptoms and and capture them rather than directly asking the question so um we, we didn't say we were going to talk a lot about panorama but um there, there was this criticism on the panorama show that he was talking about football i don't know whether you remember that yeah 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 yeah, yeah. well actually a skilled clinician will use things like that to distract people away from the stress of being asked about your ADHD symptoms. And often in an assessment, you'll get a gem from one of those distractions. So you, you'll take someone off and, and talk about the football, but actually 
in that conversation, there will be clues to symptoms. So it's it's not as straightforward as, oh, well, he didn't ask me about the 18 symptoms, because probably there will be bits of the, of the conversation where those symptoms were evident. And that is a far more rich way of capturing <laughs> that information than just saying, do you lose your keys a lot? Do you leave the washing in the washing machine? And all those cliches that it's so easy to pull off the internet and say, yeah, I do that. That's what I have to admit, right? And I know we've spoken about my, my assessment offline. That is exactly what happened in my assessment. I would describe it as I waffled around general headlines that I was given and was asked certain questions. As I think about it, what I wasn't asked, and I was just looking at that document as well, and it mentions this, I was never asked a leading question. It was never trying to kind of force me to an answer. It was, you know, I spoke a lot about, uh, I think I presented worse, or one of the pieces I presented worse was during my time working for British Airways as cabin crew between the ages of 21 and 26. Completely unfiltered disaster. But actually a lot of the questions was I was telling stories and as I remember it now, the clinician was head down at that point, kind of glancing yeah. up, head down. And now I think about it, I'm thinking, oh, God, there was so much in that, wasn't there? Yeah. So so in an assessment, if you're saying yes, no a lot, you're not yeah. having a good assessment. An assessment should be a conversation. It should feel like someone's wanting to get to know you as a person rather than have you tick off boxes um, yeah. and the more experienced clinicians will do that the less experienced clinician will rely more on the diagnostic criteria and there's a tool called the diva which yeah. is it's it is an acronym but it's an and an acronym that comes from dutch so don't ask me to yeah. say what the d is for but it's essentially a diagnostic tool um, yeah. and that essentially takes the 18 symptoms and turns them into questions and gives little prompts and things that yes. might come up. Um, and when you're starting out in ADHD diagnostics, it's a comfortable place to rely on to get those questions so you can be sure that you've covered all 18 symptoms. As you get more experienced in having conversations about ADHD, you move further and further away from that because you're able to go on that journey with someone and go on the tangents that they go on um, mm -hmm. and find a lot more rich description of the symptoms. Um, so they, we ourselves have gone on a little bit of a tangent because I was talking about the diagnostic criteria. That, that is the way that a, a good assessment will look like. Will look. It's not a series of 18 yes or no questions. A, a lot of us will use the adult ADHD rating scale, the ASRS. Um, right. And that is essentially um, a, a Likert scale, so an intensity scale of each of the 18 symptoms. So that's, it's a little bit more detailed than yes or no. It's it, it never, rarely, sometimes, often, very often. But it's mm. so you can do that with a tick box exercise quite quickly, but actually getting the richness of description of those 18 symptoms is really, really important. Um, because that is criteria A of criteria A through E. Right. Okay. And I'm just going to say a really silly question. I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you go through criteria A, then B, then C? Is it done no. in order as part of the assessment? Or, oh, okay, so it's 
as it as it flows, or should, it can be as it flows. So this is only about the the um, at the moment. These early sort of A B are about the symptoms. Um, so B is that those symptoms were present prior to the age of twelve. Right. Which is why we ask about childhood and why we need informant reports, school reports, someone who knew you when you were a child. Um, there are ways of, of doing the assessment without that. So some right. of our old, older patients won't have anyone still around that knew them when they were a child. Um, in DSM-5, it was 12. In DSM-4, and I can remember those days, it was under the age of seven. Um, and those criteria in, in DSM-4 were very much written around the diagnosis of children. Um, uh, so it's since DSM-4 moving into DSM-5 that the recognition that some adults wouldn't have that, that depth of quality of information about their childhood that we would have looked for in DSM-4 um, and might not be able to remember back to pre-7, but may have some memories of later primary school years. Um, and and you were you were talking about as well. It doesn't matter if you don't have all the information. I think was that was that what you were hinting as so well? The, yeah, the the more information you've got, the better. Um, uh, and it's it's I won't diagnose someone if I can't get anything about before they were twelve. Um, but there are a range of ways of getting that from your own memory, from conversations about primary school. So sometimes I'll spend a bit of time if we can't get. Um, school reports and, and we can't get someone who knew you as a child might spend some time talking about primary school and what it was like um, talking about memories of, of the schoolyard, what was happening while you were learning to read, write, do maths all those sorts of things um, because often you can capture that that richness within that conversation there are some rating scales we can use as well which add a bit of validity to to the the narrative that we we pick out from there so it's an, it, it is one of those things that people are, oh i can't i haven't got any school reports or i haven't got this or i haven't got that it, that's not something to worry about that's something for the person assessing you to guide you on really that's what a good assessment would look like it's not oh well if you haven't got school reports i can't diagnose you that that okay. is not a good response so there's two things that jump to mind i'll go with the first one now, which is looking at the, uh, as the document calls it, the three Ps, persistent, pervasive, problematic. If you were in that scenario where you're trying to understand the childhood and you don't have reports, what, what do you think you're basing or what, what would you be basing problematic on? What, what would be a, a, something that would sort of prick up your ears and go, mm, that sounds like somebody who struggled? if there wasn't a report to back it up or, or a parent that could sort of add validity to it? So it's it's that description of, of the symptoms. So those 18 symptoms, are they there? Can, can you remember times where you were criticised because you, you were presenting with one of those symptoms? Um, talking about how that impacted on you as a person. You know, how, how did that... So we, we would talk through through tales of primary school and, and, and the conversation would evolve into a symptom and we talked through, okay, how did that get responded to by the teachers and then how did that right. impact upon you and what did you change as a result of getting into trouble with the teacher that time and ending up outside the headmaster's office? Those sorts of things um, give you that sense of it being persistent, pervasive, 
and problematic. Would would it be fair to say, although it's not my favourite word in this conversation, but I'll use it anyway, is that a sort of a process for you as a clinician, for any clinician, of helping someone peel back a mask that they may have been, you know, I can think of my own sons, right, particularly my oldest, to certain people, despite the fact that my, you know, Catherine and I have always been BU, it's okay. I had no idea the effort he was putting in. Is that something you're trying to gently do as well? Absolutely. And that's why an ADHD assessment needs to be a good ADHD assessment, because you are peeling back layers of protection. These are these are layers of defence that we put up in response to society not understanding us and us not being able mm-hmm. to connect with what they're expecting, you know. So it's th- there are those that have memories of really overt and, and visible, outwardly visible signs of ADHD and it was always outside the headmaster's office, but there's equally the the girl at the back of the classroom sitting quietly daydreaming, looking out the window, not getting the notes down. I made a gender bias there as well. And I, so there's, there's a lot of gender bias in, in ADHD mm. diagnostics. Yeah, and I think is. there are as many boys quietly sitting zoned out at the back of the classroom, not following and making notes as there are girls. Um, yeah. So, so sometimes it's, it's about capturing that as well so is it that story might not be yeah i was always outside the headmaster's office but it was i was always running around my friends trying to find out what the homework was because i didn't get it written down in time i i I didn't hear what the teacher was saying um but they when you're assessing someone in that way i find it a lot easier to spot when someone is embellishing the truth in order to meet the criteria and that does happen that does happen. really I'm, I'm not saying that there, there are you know there, there are much easier ways you said at the, at the start of the podcast that it, this isn't about people trying to access stimulants yeah. so there are much easier ways of getting hold of stimulant drugs if that's what you want and trying than torturing <laughs> yourself through an ADHD yeah. assessment you know, <laughs> this is a very expensive way it's an expensive way of of doing something that you know. If you ask in the right nightclubs at the right time, you, someone will put you in touch with someone who can get that if that's what you're looking for. And it's probably a lot cheaper as well, um, just in terms of drug costs. Never mind going through the assessment process and having what is probably the most. I've been a mental health nurse for thirty years. I, I did the maths the other day, and it's it's thirty wow. years I've been a mental health nurse, and an ADHD diagnostic assessment is the most comprehensive mental assessment you will ever have. Okay, so which leads we're, me to this question then: history taking. Then you say comprehensive. What, uh, given this document was written that we're referencing, does that mean to you there have been variances in it, the? interpretation of what comprehensive may mean oh of course there are yeah yeah um you know it's going back to that tick box exercise it's how how deep do you want to to delve into someone's story because in every aspect of someone's story because adhd is pervasive Mm. wherever you look it's there if you ask the question um but you have to be looking um, if, if we're looking at history taking, which I suppose this is a good point at criteria B to, to, to look at that, um, 
you have to be looking everywhere. Um, so we, I had it leveled at me recently that as a nurse, I wouldn't take a comprehensive medical history for someone and I might mistake someone's physical health problem for ADHD, um, which is completely untrue. Ask a comprehensive medical history as well and look for mm -hmm. indicators of, of um, genetically passed on conditions that, that could look like ADHD. And then we have to work back and discount that as being an explanation. So taking that history isn't just about the symptoms of ADHD. It isn't just about the medical history and the physical things that could look like ADHD. It's also about taking that psychiatric history. So that history of your mental well-being, um, which goes right back to infancy, really. Um, you know, we, we, we look at what the, what the pregnancy was like all the way through mm -hmm. to current day, um, which most general psychiatry, and if you're being assessed for bipolar, we don't ask about what, what pregnancy was like, what your days as a toddler were like, but we do in ADHD because we have to on account of ADHD being something that has always been there. The other side of that is it has to have always been there. Therefore, if something happens that could be an issue that creates symptoms of inattention. If those symptoms were were there prior to that event, be that a, prior, um, a traumatic event or the development of hypothyroidism, for example, if you can evidence that those symptoms that were there before that diagnosis and that the onset of that physical health problem or that psychological response, then you can quite confidently say that the inattention isn't as a result of those other diagnoses they are coexisting conditions rather than a different diagnosis now so, you, you you interestingly raise a point there and i think that that crops up in in that document section about history taking and again just to sort of paraphrase it talks about very high rates of comorbidity of other things conditions call it what you want conditions with adhd um can make a proper history check a considerable task and it does say adhd should not be diagnosed when another condition better explains symptoms and impairments i am going to presume that with all the training in the world there is a certain amount of experience that's needed as well in order yes. to be confident about that when you're faced with someone and is that also therefore why the headline I hear a lot is misdiagnosis. And I understand there are lots, particularly, again, gender bias, I know, but particularly women as young girls who may get different diagnosis first, whether it's, you know, something to do with emotion or, or attachment or, you know, personality disorders, and then later in life, oh, no, actually, that, that was ADHD. Can it be the other way, though? And I'm presuming it can because of that paragraph. So, yes, it can. It can. Um, we have to remember that ADHD, living with ADHD is stressful. I know you and I remember that every day. Mm -hmm. And anybody living with ADHD remembers that every day. It's stressful. Um, and it's, it's almost part and parcel of having an adolescence with ADHD that there's an element of anxiety and depression. Yeah. If your ADHD isn't diagnosed, it's, it, it's, it's more likely that that's the case than not. So the majority of ADHD assessments that I do will 
be talking about the the onset of anxiety um the onset of of low mood and that self criticism and that starting to become aware of difference and what does that mean to me um so teasing out what is a coexisting condition that is coming as a consequence of living with ADHD as compared to a completely different diagnosis is a really important part of an ADHD assessment and a good ADHD assessment report will comment on the relationships between those coexisting conditions. Um, so we've, we've sort of skipped ahead to, to category E um, in, the, in the diagnostic criteria. Um, so the, the symptoms don't occur exclusively during the course of schizophrenia, another psychotic disorder, or are not better explained by another mental disorder is what what the wording of category E is, but that's essentially, is this something else? And yeah. I think that that is where the less good quality assessments fall down. They don't go into enough detail about the relationship between other diagnoses um, and give that explanation of, of how all of these different features of things that tick boxes in other diagnoses relate to one another and and formulate that into an understanding of the person's experience because that's what a good assessment does you should come is that away what c and d do then you say we skip so ahead to e is that c, what is that c what's missing if it's not good so c and d we should cover before we we answer that c and d are about the fact that it isn't just happening in one setting so it's not uh, that is, so this is this is one that often people fall down on because teachers aren't noticing the symptoms at school. So they say, well, it's not happening at school. It's just happening at home. So it must be something about the home environment where actually it's often that the child is masking that and then coming home. And, so we've what, talked okay. about that before on the podcast. Yeah, now I've got somebody I know very well who is currently going through that exact thing, has had you know, went for an assessment and because school can't verify that the way their child presents is the same, uh, so the way their child presents at school matches what they're being told happens at home. They're being told by the clinician, therefore we're not going to be able to go anywhere with ADHD. Yeah, so this puts an awful lot of pressure on the teachers, doesn't it? It's almost like we're asking the teachers to diagnose the ADHD. Without yeah. the teacher saying, yeah, those symptoms are there, we can't call it ADHD. Let me read out what criteria C says. Several symptoms are present in two or more settings, for example, at home, school or work, with friends or relatives, in other activities. That's what the criteria say. They don't say at school or work and at home. And often an assessor will say, if it's not happening at school or work, then it isn't ADHD. However, we know that people mask, people do a, mm. put a lot of effort into not being seen to be inattentive and hyperactive in in their, their primary activity because they, they they don't want to. They've they've had an adolescence of of I don't want to be criticised like this anymore, yep. so I hide this. Yep. Um, and the criteria are very clear that it's got to be two settings, but it doesn't have to be home and school, home and work. 
So I, often I'll say, well, do they go to brownies? Do they go to a karate club? What other set? It just has to be another setting to remove the potential that it is the home environment that's causing the issue, which could be the case. However, if that's also happening at brownies and those symptoms are evident at brownies as well, when the, the potentially, let's for example, the abusive parent is not there, but we're mm. still seeing that that those um, symptoms that are, are meeting the other criteria, then we've got a second setting. Okay, so let me give you a hypothetical then, because I'm now thinking of of lots of scenarios here, and 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 I've heard that so often from multiple sources. Of we were told school couldn't verify it so they couldn't consider adhd rather than two other sources which is interesting okay so if we have a parent for example with a child and the, the, the parents say look they're, they're brooms a bomb site they're constantly losing things constantly disorganized tempers flaring up every day when they can't find things and literally three days out of five when we go to school there's a phone call saying i've forgotten phone pe kit homework whatever but school don't see it because the parents are in a position to rescue the child and, and turn around go home pick that up and take it before it becomes a detention a behavior point or whatever if you were to hear that would you then be asking it sounds to me that the question you're asking is well hold on a minute so what is going on there is it because the parents are rescuing the child and making sure they don't get detentions because that's going to make them suffer more? Or is it something else? Because to me, that sounds like a if the, there's an element of me, and I've wanted to say before, just don't take the stuff. Okay. Oh, they've forgotten it. So, right, don't take it then. So so that, that that's the way to jump through the hoop of the diagnostic criteria, it seems. However... Is it not, and I know this is very pertinent to you, is it not right to get that, get in the car and take that thing? Because it is, isn't it? Because that's what you do as a parent. You love your yeah. child, you get in the car and you go and you take yeah. it. And it doesn't yeah. matter whether Mr. Smith is aware that's happened or not. The kit is there. And what we often see is um, what we refer to as scaffolding. So the supports that yeah. are there around the person being assessed. Um, are amazingly good. And should you be the victim of your own success, your own strength as a parent, because you're supporting your child? No, you don't withdraw that support, but it needs to be considered and explained. So again, a good assessment will explore that. You know, why, if, if you're saying those, those symptoms are there, why are the teachers not seeing it? They're not seeing it because I've got a stash of school ties. So if school tie gets lost, there's another one. So you don't yeah. notice that they're not coming into school with a school tie because I've got yeah. a, a supply yeah. of 10. You know, yeah. um, it doesn't matter if the if your PE kit is left in a pile as a goalpost on the school field because I've got a spare PE kit. All yeah. of those sorts of things hide these symptoms. But, of course, as parents, that's what you do. And I don't think you should stop doing that in order to jump through a hoop and tick a box on someone's diagnostic criteria. It's, it's for the person who's doing the assessment to understand that and explore that. And um, often in our assessments, we will comment on the scaffolding and the support that's around mm -hmm. because 
by describing that, by saying mum has a, a drawer full of school ties because Billy is so prone to losing his tie, that's evidence. That's evidence of impairment at school. Why else would mum have a drawer full of ties? Yeah, I can think back to my own diagnosis again now, and that's what was said about my wife. She was essentially my scaffolding, yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it was um, actually directly said. If you are loved, the person who loves you will be doing things to support you that will hide your symptoms. That mm. shouldn't be taken away in order to meet the, the standard of the assessment. The assessment should meet that and understand that. So this brings us right. on to, to D, doesn't it? Which is the, the, the final. Well, it's, it's the yeah, no, we we've already talked about the final. The D is there's clear evidence that the symptoms interfere with or reduce the quality of functioning, whether that's social, school, work, Ooh. wherever. And, and that's, that is where the richness comes in. Yeah, isn't that's, it? But that is also where the subjectivity comes in. Um, Big word, that, isn't it? Functioning. Yeah. Um, so we've, in psychiatry, we talk about impairment, we talk about functioning, uh, and it's some unpleasant language, but it's language that has to be used in order to define something being atypical. Um, Do you know I what, think... Lee? I, I hear what you say. I don't mind that term. I just think it, in those terms about impairment of functioning, I think that that kind of hits me in the gut when you say that, because I know that. Does that I mean, I know you must as well, but that really is like a, oof, yeah, okay. I know yeah. exactly what that means, and it hurts. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it is the core of a diagnosis of ADHD. Um, so as, as the literature has become more refined in understanding ADHD, this is where the diagnosis is. Yes, you have to meet all the other criteria. Yes, you have to rule out the other potential causes of these symptoms. However, if there are all of those symptoms there, um, and th this was the case for Rory on Panorama, he had some symptoms. I, I know that the, the, um, the NHS consultant said none, but I think there were observable symptoms and you know, Mike and I would probably debate that <laughs> ourselves because this is the nature of the of diagnostics, isn't it? It's a subjective thing. Mm -hmm. I think, having spent time with Rory, there are symptoms of ADHD evident. There, there are other reasons why Rory didn't meet the criteria, which he's talked about in the media. But the the key one here is: does it impact on your functioning? Does it get in the way? Does it hinder you? Um, right. And does it cause distress? And a good assessment will explore that. So having been through the most comprehensive workup of your mental health history, your medical history, your, your developmental history through your, your um, pregnancy, through into infancy, um, having done all of that, we're also looking for, and how does that affect you as a person and how you get on in life? Because if you're losing your losing your keys and you leave the washing in the washing machine and you fidget a bit and that, but you're if you're not bothered by that, that's not ADHD. Um, and I don't think anybody seeking an assessment for ADHD is 
it's going to say, well, I've got all these symptoms, but I'm not really actually that bothered. I just want to get it. You know, I like the four letters. I, I think it would be nice to have them apply. I don't think anybody does that. Yeah. You come for an ADHD assessment because it's hard. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's the hardest part of having had a diagnosis of ADHD to, to get your head around that it's a disability. Um, I, I still wrangle with that. Um, I know it is on paper, but how I relate that to me, you know, I, 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 on good days, I don't consider myself disabled, yet the law does. Mm. Um, and I, that is part of the journey in understanding your own diagnosis. And it's, it's understanding that sometimes those symptoms of ADHD that you have are going to be disabling. They are going to impact on your ability to do what you would do on other days. And that's hard. Um, but yeah. that has to be there. If that's not there, then it's not ADHD. This leads me to a question. Somebody referred to ADHD as a spectrum recently, and I kind of went, mm, is it? Now, I think what they were saying is people present ADHD differently, which I understand. Now, I have this diagnosis, severely disabling combined subtype. Does that mean... When I sat in front of my clinician, I ticked every box to the max, and it was it was a. What would that mean, and and what does it mean to the individual? So criteria A says you have to have more than five symptoms in order to right. tick criteria A. If you've got five, that doesn't mean it's mild as compared to nine means it's severe. That's not what we're saying at all. So the mild through to severe is nothing to do with the symptoms as such. The mild to severe sits with the impact on your functioning. And it's a subjective measure. So it's a subjective interpretation of the comprehensive information we've gathered. True. And that, so it's the, the severity is a descriptor of the impairment, not of the, in, the number of symptoms that you have. So it's possible to have inattentive subtype ADHD that is severe with five symptoms of inattention. And that's gotcha. it. Yeah. But because equally, of the you can impact. Have, you can have mild combined presentation ADHD with nine and nine yeah you see i've just been kicked in the stomach metaphorically again with that one yeah um that that makes now more sense because i can now look back well that, that kick go, in the stomach oh. is ex exactly what i was just saying isn't it about wrangling with the idea of disability yeah, oh, because yeah. some somebody yeah. has made that subjective statement that you know those things you told me are a problem well are actually really severe as compared to other people i've met with those problems Mm. Yeah, it's um okay. I guess then this maybe leads into the uh, if if you think we're at the right place, the next phase. So if that's how a good diagnosis or a good assessment should be put together, if that's what we're looking for and what we're assuming we will receive, right? Is this balance? Is this good check of our history? Is this collecting all 
or as much relevant information as as is required to make that assessment against the criteria against those checkboxes to to then say you know again in my case severely disabling the next bit really is you know we're going to get a report this is what this paper was about wasn't it? it's about the you know the assessment reports that get sent to gps and say why yeah. as the person receiving do you think there should be or there is a a lack of understanding about what good looks like in that regard as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And it comes from this idea that the doctor can say, I am diagnosing you with this. So I've seen letters that just say, I saw this person on such and such a day. I found them to have to meet the criteria for a diagnosis of ADHD. This is what I suggested they do. And it be, you know, one side of A4. Um, and that's it that's what they get uh, and there may be more notes attached to that but no you never see those um, and what the paper that we're sort of structuring today's conversation around says is that that's not okay um, the yeah. report should be um, and, and I agree with this it should be a standalone document or series of documents that describe everything we've talked about um, so that anyone who understands the diagnostic process can come along and see the journey that the clinician has been on through to the decision. Um, and can the I paper just... that, that we're referencing says exactly that. So in box one, it talks about what yeah. should be there. It does, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, what I was just going to say. That's, um... okay, we are, we are going to share a link to this. But yeah, when when on on the second page, box one does a really good explanation of what it should be there. There is just a paragraph, if I can, that I would like to read. And I guess you know, I say this a lot. If you if you want to leave us a comment or tell us if this happened for you, fine. Please don't name clinicians. Just did it happen for you? After diagnosis, it is important to provide the patient with a detailed explanation and psychoeducation about ADHD in understandable language. The assessor must allow the patient time to reflect on the diagnosis and the opportunity to ask follow-up questions. Psychological issues should be discussed, including educational, occupational, and social impacts. Hmm. I now think the penny has just dropped because if i were a gp and somebody came to me with the kind of thing you were just describing which is a, uh, i'm dr so-and-so or i'm mr so-and-so and i saw this person and they tick this box this was and i say adhd give them drug i i can see how some gps may just sit there and go why yeah and you know, because you want me to take over this shared care agreement. That's what we hear a lot. You want me to dispense stimulant, non-stimulant medication. Can so I have a bit a, more this, information? This is, this is more complex than that because we, you're, you're, you're jumping ahead to the prescribing of treatment. Um, after diagnosis, there should be a, a, an opportunity to have your emotional reaction to that and anybody who's been diagnosed with adhd knows about the roller coaster i know that you were putting a few weeks back you were putting your sort of week by yeah, week yeah. 
rem- uh, memories of of what it's yeah. like, and it is that there are phases to it, just like there are phases to any change, mm. any, any news. You have reactions to that, and and those change. And without guidance through that, it can be a terrifying experience because you're you have been redefined. Yeah, totally. that's what that's what a diagnosis does. It says you know all those things that you thought were one thing, mm. and you blamed yourself, and that's why mm. you're anxious and depressed. Well, actually, there's an explanation for this in the structure and function of your brain. Yeah, to just then go bye is <laughs> is a bit harsh, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well done. You know, oh, oh, you've broken your leg. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Correct. It's broken. Yeah. yeah. That 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 is yes. That when you get to the point of having a formulated diagnosis, you have done something. But have you helped someone in their journey? Have you answered the original question, which is, is this ADHD? Does this explain? And what can I do about it? Because that's the question people come come with, isn't it? It's yeah, yeah. Tell me, tell me whether or not this is ADHD, and help me understand what to do about that. Um. So yeah. you've only done half a job if you've written, if you've sort of ticked the boxes in, in box one and done that great comprehensive thing that we've talked in detail about. Because then someone needs some time and to, to just take a step back and say, whoa, okay, that was harsh. Don't so you ever. After, after most assessments I do, I say, just go and sit quietly for at least an hour, get yourself a drink, you know, just sit and, and allow the thoughts to happen um, because they will. This is this is big news that you, that you've just been given, and you will have a reaction to that. And then there, there should be that opportunity, at least the offer of an opportunity to to come back with questions, whether that be with another appointment, which if it's private can be expensive, or whether you know, can I just send you a quest, a couple of questions by email and get a written response? You know, that's be, that's to be negotiated. But there should be an opportunity to to ask questions um, and, uh, and pick apart what's happened in the assessment that has been written about. Um, mm. And yes, then then it's time to move along to thinking about treatment. And so can I just clarify that, that term? Because I think in episode one, we spoke about the NICE guidelines for adults being pretty clear about you know, I suppose in summary, pills and skills, or skills and pills. You know, a combination mm-hmm. of it's the multimodal and, approach is is yeah, the phrase that's it uses. the word multimodal. Yeah. Right. Okay. That to me sounds like a confirmation of that's the only and the right approach. It has to be multimodal. But I suppose what's important for me, what I'm getting is this this thing of we have to be given time to digest the fact that our life has literally just been changed. Yeah. We may know that we have struggled. We probably have got a damn good idea that life's been difficult, which is why we're sat in front of a, someone like you now. But nonetheless, boy, oh boy, should we be given a bit of decompression time and a bit of, wow. Right? Yeah. yeah. Having been on both sides of the table in, in this, um, I, I know from my experience of diagnosis, um, and this is something we haven't yet talked about today, the, the, the raft of questionnaires that comes 
you know, that as a company, we send out endless uh-huh. questionnaires um, because it's an efficient way of getting yes or no ticks in boxes. You know, do you lose your keys? Do you, do, do, you know, did, well, how old were you when you started walking? All those sorts of bits of information can be put down on a questionnaire and, and gathered. But I remember filling out what is essentially the the list of symptoms that uh, we talked about the diva earlier yeah. essentially my own diva now i filled at that point i'd filled out hundreds of these for other people but when i did my own it was a completely different experience because Why? i was looking at because i was looking at myself because i was peeling back my layers and i was having to expose what i'd done pre-assessment and so, uh, and say oh, yeah that did happen in childhood and this is what it looked like where i hidden that so sometimes it can be quite intense to be given that list of of questionnaires and and uh. we will always say if, if if you can't fill that out it's okay we'll we'll work through that with you um because it is it, it can be anyway a, a, a really distressing thing to do and it mm. can take a long time it took me hours to, to fill my own out you know i can rattle through one with someone in an hour an hour and a half um is it because it kept hitting you so hard with every question yeah. yeah because not only was i having to think about myself i was relating that to every patient i'd ever seen and and questioning myself you know is it because I'd, I'd not considered it to be ADHD. But then when I sat down with that tool and started picking it apart, so that was even before I'd had the assessment. And my assessment was very much a, 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 a wham-bam approach. It was just this, 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 this. And it was done in a way that was effective and it got some level of, of richness of understanding. Um, and then it sort of sped up towards the end to fill in the gaps because apparently I talk too much. <laughs> I don't think I do, but I, that's in my report. Um, um, so, th- and then I was sent the report and it was there in black and white and someone qualified to say it was saying, yeah, you do meet the criteria for this diagnosis and that itself, seeing it there in black and white, your name next to this, this diagnosis it is a thing. It's a thing that you have to deal with. So it, if a report just says, yeah, you've got it, and nothing else, and, and no explanation of the journey that the person took to understand you as a person, I don't think that's a very kind way of diagnosing someone with ADHD. It's not a supportive way. It's not a therapeutic way of, of delivering a diagnosis. So in my practice, I suppose because I've done it a bit longer, um, my assessment is is taking you on a journey and it, it it's a conversation it's it's not a it's not an examination as such it's a conversation which which allows you to talk about things that that you want to talk about that you're bringing that make you think it's ADHD as opposed to something else and i mm. think a good quality assessor will make it comfortable for all it's an uncomfortable thing to have to do there are elements of it that can be done in conversation where you feel like you're having a a chat with someone and it's a lot more relaxed Mm. where it feels less relaxed is where it's oh i've got to tick this box and i've got to tick that box 
there's pressure then to say what needs to be said to put the tick in the box, whereas a conversation allows for a lot more natural human exchange. And that needs to then be captured in a report that tells everyone how that journey happened and, and the information that came up in that and should have comments about interpreting what what came up in that conversation um so you know i i noticed they fidget um is, is a really sort of headline one there, there, there are all sorts of subtleties um mm. that that sort of come with experience um but that should be there in the report because that then you can read over and over again and people do read their reports over and over again because people say, you know, I think it's quite natural to question your diagnosis. And lots of people after Panorama were saying, oh, I've, got, I've questioned my diagnosis. You should have a good quality assessment report to go back to and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I do meet those criteria because it's spelled out in my assessment report. If it's not spelled out in your assessment report, how can you check that that diagnosis is valid? And you'll want to. What do you do? Right, thirty second answer, right on the spot. What What do you do if you do suddenly go back and you don't have a detailed report or one that you feel is detailed, and you suddenly think, "I don't, I don't know now. I'm not so sure we have, now." We have this where people want to transfer to us for treatment, um, and th this happens. So. It's, <laughs> It's not just psychiatrists that diagnose ADHD. It's not just nurse specialists, although that is a bulk of the, of the diagnostic team that's, that's going on. It's mostly psychiatrists. There are some of us nurse specialists with enough experience to do this. Um, there are other disciplines that are diagnosing as well, and one of those is psychologists. And psychologists will diagnose ADHD with less of a medical angle to it. So sometimes we get a referral of someone wanting to be prescribed medication because they've been diagnosed by a psychologist. Um, and in that case, we would have to fill in the gaps in the, the assessment so that the medical right. history might not be as, as good a quality as would support prescribing, so we'd do a bit more in-depth on that. Um, sometimes, yes, we get, this is my diagnostic letter, yes, Dr. Watson, Dr. What's-His-Name says it's, um, it's definitely ADHD. In that case, what we tend to recommend is exercising your rights under the Data Protection Act, um, because that doctor will have records with your name on um, with more detailed notes, or should have, and you have the right to that information under the Data Protection Act. Uh, okay. um, so if they say, if you, the first step is to go back to them and say, well, look, this, this is a very top-level letter. Can I have the more detailed summary? Some providers will charge to release the extra information. Yeah, they can't. sure they will. They can't. Yeah, they can't, though, can they? Because it's Data Protection Act. But they'll try. Data. They'll try. They'll say you, but they, they mm. can't because you have the right to that information if it's stored and it's about you. Therefore, sometimes it's a subject access request under the Data Protection Act for all of your records with that provider. Um, so that's something that you can do to get the more detailed information. Um, they have the right to redact certain elements of that. Um, yeah. So sometimes we'll get information from from someone 
um, and they don't want that information to be shared. You know, a great uncle such and such wants to comment such and such, but he doesn't consent to us sharing that information with the patient. We have to respect his right to that as, as yeah, well. So okay. there, there are there are subtleties. However, if the information is about you and it exists and it's stored, yes. and it sits behind this diagnostic letter that just says Billy has ADHD, you have a legal right to that information and you can ask for it. Um, so we, we okay. do that in, in situations where there's there's a poor quality assessment report. Um, sometimes that then is not the best quality information as well. You have the right to it. Don't pay. But can for I it. just go backwards? It's sort of in and around that. But there's a statement that paragraph I just read. I'm just wondering. Should because it, it mentions um, psycho, psych, psychosocial issues should be discussed, including educational, occupational, and social. Am I right in thinking that's another way of saying? You've got a right to expect perhaps more than one letter. Like, do I need a letter for work? Do I need a letter for school or university? Do I need a letter for me? Or, or are there different styles of approaching that? There's all sorts of different styles of approaching that. And what, that's not saying that there should be a letter for your boss and a letter for your university tutor or a letter for your class teacher. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that there should be consideration to the impact of this news, this diagnosis on those situations on and, and what you can do about it. So um, there should be conversations about the Equality Act and the fact that ADHD is a protected characteristic. There should be conversation if you're a driver about um what the impact of the diagnosis is on your car insurance for example mm. that or or direction to some information about that and the opportunity to ask questions based on what you read on that information if you're able to you know if it's possible for you to go and do that if, if you say well I, I can't find that information and i need you to tell me it's right. reasonable to expect an answer to that question yes um, and it is a bit of a grey area. Okay. So what does good uh, look like? Let's go back to the topic then. What after diagnosis for you as a patient? I'm going to put this to you. Uh, when you were diagnosed, what's good to you? What's what, what What would you like to have gone? I I went away with this and that was, you know, my minimum expectation, for example. I, based on the last 10 minutes of conversation, the, the post-diagnostic care I got missed this bit. Um, and, and this is where the nice guidance falls down, isn't it? Because nice guidance, and I've said it myself on this podcast, mm -hmm. that the first thing we do for an adult who's diagnosed with ADHD is give medication. And that is the first treatment intervention. However, yeah. there is this, this gray area between diagnosis and treatment of helping someone make sense of it um and i in my practice will will try and do that on the journey so through the assessment um start to to drop in these these bits of understanding and the explanation of how this got to this position and some of the things that can be done about it um but that's not necessarily what people are going to do across the board nor is it what's expected 
but a, a good post-diagnosis response should be about making sense of and continuing on that journey. The, the diagnosis is a start point, not an end point. But I, I think for clinicians, it can often be perceived as an end point. Oh, well, I've done a great job. I've done my assessment and that is the job done. But that is the start of a different phase of experience. You've answered the question, is it ADHD? But you haven't said, this is what to do about it. Mm -hmm. So a good assessment will lead to a detailed report, for sure. Um, and, and box one on the, on the article that we're, we're talking about today outlines what that should look like yeah. um, in, in lots of depth. Then there is this blurry bit about, okay, what does that mean for me as a person in society and how do I adjust to it? Which is actually a lot of what people are looking for when they seek a diagnosis, not the detailed yeah. report that explains why someone thinks it's ADHD. Actually, now you've told me it's ADHD, what the hell do I do about this? Yeah. Is not a question that, that gets answered in the guidance and i think that's where a lot of people find adhd care lacking because there there isn't that guidance it's just okay yeah this you're one of that three to five percent of the population that is inattentive or hyperactive or both um I, and i think that's where communities like the whatsapp group that that you provide um and other networks you know there are endless amounts of support groups that's what i think therefore that's that that's what's evolved to to fill that gap um because the experience and it's my experience i think it's your experience as mm -hmm. well is okay i've taken you to to the, the point of saying yes it's adhd and there's this gap, and yes, I'll give you some medications that may or may not work, and I, there's a different process to support with that, and there's all sorts of science and, and good practice guidance around that, but there's this gap where you're just left in a void of, okay, yeah, what does is. that actually mean? Um, so a really good assessment will meet you in that gap and say, okay, how's it feeling? What's it like? What's going on? How are you reacting to that? reassure you that a lot of what you're feeling is something that lots of people who've gone before have felt um that there is no typical response and there's certainly no oh okay that's it now i just take my stimulants and i get on with it but the, the um, pressures of society push us to to say okay well we've got these amazing treatments let's just get on with that rather than whoa you've just completely redefined my life <laughs> Now, can I ask you a question? I've just read what it says in the report, but I'm going to ask from your because you describe things in a in a in a real human way. Do you think, as patients, if that's the right term, as people newly diagnosed, there is misunderstanding about what the term shared care means? Um, I think there's misunderstanding that extends beyond people who might be subject to it. I think there's misunderstandings about it in um medical colleagues you know people who are actually doing shared care um what what that actually means yeah because we talk about it a lot and and actually last year post the uh the documentary there was this period where well oh, gps are refusing shared care agreements that's the phrase we're shared care and, and and i was getting told it now i've just read what this report says about shared care several times and I've gone hmm I'll be honest with you that's not quite what my interpretation was 
And I understand, I think, why it's up for, not debate, why, why perhaps it's confusing sometimes. And also why, if a GP did receive what they felt was an inadequate assessment report, why they might be hesitant to go, mm, can I have a bit yeah. more information? And more yeah. to the point, I didn't realise this until I've just read that paragraph, although I think you've mentioned this before. Um, Share care in England is a euphemism for transferring extra contractual work to primary care, as in GPs, typically unfunded, with continuing access to specialist oversight when indicated. Now, you mentioned this, and the pennies, I'm having lots of penny drop moments today. Is this what you meant by, okay, if your GP does accept shared care, and for example, if there is then a, a shortage all of a sudden of the medication that it was recommended you were prescribed, that the GP should feel able to go back to the specialist and say, you prescribed this stimulant, you tell me what's the right thing to do now, because this person's coming to me and saying, I can't access my drugs. Is that part of that? sort of circular shared care agreement. It doesn't just go, right, private's done, there you go, doc. Yeah. That's what sharing is, Matt. It's but called shared people... care because the care yeah. is shared. And I don't think that's very well understood. No. And the, the, art, the, the way the, the authors of this article have phrased it is, is um, that it's, it's very skillfully phrased because yeah. GPs do feel like it's just, okay, we're done, dumped. And yeah. if anything comes up, that's on you until we review in a year's time. And that is not the the wording of the majority of shared care agreements, because it's not it's not about shared care. There is a shared care agreement, um, uh, and that's what shared care is about. It's about having a signed agreement that the specialist and the GP have signed yeah. up to that's, that spells out, if this happens, the GP will do this. If this happens, the specialist will do that. That A shared care agreement has – it's it's quite a, a lengthy document yeah. um, if, it's, if it's written well, and there are standards to them, and, um, and but they can be altered. You know, it's, it's possible to say, say um, and we do this at Divergence, so some GPs aren't happy to do the six-monthly blood pressure monitoring. So we have an option on our shared care agreement for the GP to say, I'm not going to do that. You'll have to do that with the patient if I'm going to prescribe the medication. Okay. Because GPs don't have the resources you know it's called, that. that's what the extra contractual work mm -hmm. is, is about in that article it's, it, it's about things like having the resources for the practitioners to check that blood pressure to do the weight um make sure that someone is otherwise healthy at that six month interval Mm. That costs the GP and they're a business themselves. So do yeah, they course, want yeah. to, you know, where's the interest in them to, to fund to do that, that when they're also funding out of the, the budget that they get for us as patients, the cost of the drugs? Yeah. Because when shared care is, is, is applied, the, the budget that pays for those medicines is no longer the, the private purse. It's the NHS no. funding that you, you bring to the GP practice as a patient of that practice. So that's, that is – they look at the cost of that agreement to them um, as businessmen in their own right. They, they also are Busted. independent businesses um, that gets a payment of so much from the NHS to have you on their list. So they may – you know, my argument with GPs is often 
actually having a shared care agreement instead of continued separate working where I as a private clinician prescribe a drug outside of an agreement with you is actually not as safe for the patient as having that shared care agreement where we agree how we're going to work together and deal with uh, and it's not just about access to medicines it's access to care so that if you go in um with um some cardiac symptoms let's say to your gp i've had a twinge in my heart doctor uh, and you're under shared care the gp can say oh that could be your stimulants i need to speak to your adhd specialist with a shared care agreement it's a lot easier because it's agreed and the terms of the, of what the gp can expect are there whereas without a shared care agreement i'm as a private provider under no compulsion to respond to that gp i will as a, as a compassionate clinician yeah but there's there's no compulsion. So sharing care is something that happens from the first moment I sign a prescription for someone. I'm already sharing care of that patient mm. with their GP. The shared care agreement formalizes that and sets out the terms. Um, so the understanding of what shared care is isn't just misinterpreted in the in the public perception. It's misinterpreted because of the way certain providers will use it as a, a baton passing exercise over to you for a year until i review again and give another mm. rubber stamp to say carry on for a year um a shared care agreement usually will have a clause in it about yeah if you need us you pick up the phone and you you can ask you can expect a response it would be amazed i did, did no i'm sorry that's conceited certainly i will say i did not realize that when my clinician mentioned shared care i didn't think of it as a as a circular continuing process i thought <laughs> but we were just sharing. talking about drugs i know but i just thought we were talking about will they prescribe the meds after titration that was it genuinely that was it that mm. that was my perception of shared care was and i'm fairly sure from what i saw last year being discussed that was yep. most people's interpretation. It all came down to meds. Right, Andrew, listen, I'm going I'm to put you on the spot, but hopefully this isn't a difficult question. This is such an important topic that we've, we've discussed, and, and I th I'm really grateful for you giving your, your time and your knowledge as ever. But I wonder if you can do something, and I'll give you a minute to think about it. Could you maybe summarise what you would say are the key points that people should be looking for in assessment and the key points they're looking for after diagnosis that would give that person a sense that, okay, this is, and I'll go back to the total, this is what good looks like. Not perfect, not, not, but, but this is what good looks like. So what would you say are, you know, what are we looking for in an assessment? So we're looking for an assessment against criteria that are agreed internationally. So ideally DSM-5 criteria assessment. We should be looking for an exploration of each of the five main headings. So that is, right. do, you have, do you have the symptoms um, and enough of those to, to meet the symptom criteria? Um, do you have evidence of that prior to the age of 12 do you have that in more than one setting so not just at work or at home or at school but or, or at the youth club or wherever it may be um do you 
have those things impacting on the quality of your life differently than the average person um, and can that not be explained by any other condition be that um, psychiatric or physical health condition okay. um, so a good assessment will explore all of that um, looking at your history from before you were born all the way to the current day um, focusing on your medical history, but also looking at your psychiatric history. So any interventions that would fall under the, the realm of a psychiatrist, so what, which antidepressants have you had, that sort of stuff. Look at your social history. How has your life been impacted by these symptoms? Um, and pull all of that information together into... A, usually just a paragraph that sort of summarizes it nicely and uh, and you can read it and go yeah yeah that that's got it they've they've understood everything i've told them and pulled it all into the explanation of why they think i've got adhd that there are a number of ways of gathering that information so it doesn't matter if someone sends out a raft of questionnaires or they don't send any questionnaires at all um mm -hmm. What's important is that by the end of the process, they've gathered all of that information and handed it back to you in a way that formulates that information into an explanation of why they think it's ADHD. It's not good enough just to say, I think it's ADHD. Yeah. Better quality will take you on a journey through gathering that information and help you make sense of it as you go, in my opinion. I think that's a, a really helpful and therapeutic way of, of assessing someone and also allows the clinician some room to be able to start to really understand that impairment, that the difficulties that have have hit along the way that how those symptoms have have sculpted and changed your life um right so if you've got someone who's assessing you and they're asking lots of closed questions where you're saying yes no 15 that is not a good assessment you should yeah. if you're having an assessment for adhd be involved in a conversation there should be tears there should be laughter there should be a human connection if it's going to be a good quality one. Now, it doesn't have to be there to be a good assessment. It's possible to do it in a cold and unconnected way and gather that information. But I think a good quality assessment will will have a level of personal connection. Now, that doesn't have to be in person. It, that can be achieved um, on, a, on a video link um, if it's done well. So it's, it doesn't have to be in person. Um, a good assessment will say, actually, I'm not comfortable with this. We need to come back to this. I, I don't feel like I've got enough information. That's not a sign of a bad assessment. That's a sign of someone saying, actually, we've we've done enough for today uh, and we need to take a step back from this and think about it. So they, they don't feel because someone's saying, let's take a pause here and come back to it at another time, that that's bad. That's actually someone who's saying, I've... I've I've got enough to be to be working with at the moment and I need some time to process what you've told me so far so that we can come back and have a more rich experience next time and really get to, to grips with it. Um, yeah, so it should feel like a conversation. It shouldn't feel, although it always is, daunting. That night before your assessment, 
where you're thinking, oh, I'm wasting everybody's time. This isn't really ADHD. I shouldn't be doing this. The majority of people have that experience. Um, mm. And there are lots of common experiences and they should be acknowledged. You know, it's it's it's, it's normal to, to, to feel that way. So a, a good assessment will guide you through that process and it, it uh, and it'd be okay for you to say, actually, I don't like this or this isn't feeling comfortable. Um, but yeah, it's going to be an emotional experience to have a good quality ADHD assessment because you're looking under rocks that you wish you didn't have to look under in your history. <laughs> um, and it, That's a horrible but a very true way of putting it, isn't it? Oh, yeah. God. You're turning yeah. over things that, that you would rather were left in your yeah, history. Yeah, yeah, can we not? But, yeah, yeah. If you if you're not doing that, then are you mm. making sense of 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 exactly how much this these symptoms, which are as people say, everybody has those symptoms. But if you're not uncovering distress and and things that you weren't even aware you'd done, then you're probably not getting a a, a decent quality exploration of the impact that's had. So you might find then that it's someone says it's moderate impairment when actually it's quite severe impairment but you've done so well to hide that so well to mask it that the severity of it and the 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 personal cost and the the health costs the social yeah. costs the financial costs of it are overlooked yeah. just so that we can get it across the line and say oh yes tick in the box it is adhd i think a good quality adhd assessment makes sense of a lot a lot more than just those 18 core symptoms of ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And uh, I think that's why it hits so hard, right? I'm listening to all that again, and I feel like I'm going through it again. It's really strange. Um, You know, the the uncovering the rocks and the turning things Mm. over, you'd really rather not. But if I think back to it now, I'm sure, like most people, like we've discussed, I I know I said I thought I needed a clinical assessment because I was desperate, right? I, I'd reached zero tolerance for anything. And I was looking for answers. I didn't realize at the time that the process of looking for answers would be uncovering everything that I'd chosen to sort of ignore or gloss over or or make light of even. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the after effects. Yeah, it's definitely the after effects for me. I mean, I, I went in sure I had ADHD, convinced I'd get a diagnosis of ADHD. But when I was told the severity, my knees buckled. And to this day, I think, why did my knees buckle? I knew. I knew I had ADHD. To be told like you. This is a disability. This isn't a bit of a problem. This isn't a bit, you know, this isn't uncomfortable. You have a severely disabling condition. And I kind of went, whoa, me? And that took a long, long time to get back from. A long time to get back from. And a long time to... I I, I don't think I'm back from it yet. And it's what, what we're looking at now. I'm nearly five years. Yeah, it can't be nearly five. It's it's four or Is five it? years, and I'm still wrangling with that idea. That you know, because for forty five years, that was my normal. Yeah, yeah, I know. 
and it was okay. You know, I I I, I went to work, and I yeah, I was goosed at the end of the day, but I I did my job, and I, you know, um, I I got a degree, I got a a master's degree, I I and yeah, it was hard. It was really really hard, and yeah. it's only the other day I realised that in both my degree and my master's degree, I had a year out. Oh gosh, really? Yeah, I I'd, I'd completely written that out of my history that I two years into both <gasps> I I'd had enough wow. and I needed to stop and just wow. take a step back. Wow. Isn't that so astonishing I'm still, that you I'm still thinking about that now and I think that that wow. you know when you're talking about aftercare, yes there is that immediately after. But there is when you've got years and years and your VVL project is, is yeah. about this isn't it it's when you've got those years and years of this is my normal and i'm i'm functioning yeah. so you know that's okay when someone says that was done with a disability that you didn't even know you had oh, that I, changes absolutely everything you say well, yeah. who the hell am i yeah and am and i what, a fraud what is disability yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and what is prejudice and all, yeah. all of these concepts start crashing into you and you, you don't realize until those labels are attached what all of that means oh i think i will wrap this then by saying this on that note an assessment and you said this earlier is is the very 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 start of the process it is by no way assessment and diagnosis is not where this stops it's where it all starts and done right a good one will set you on the right path it will give you the information that perhaps you were looking for whether it's uncomfortable to receive it or not but i the older i get the more i i live with this and hearing you say that the more i realize how important finding your tribe is finding other people that you can say did you do you and they can nod and they can say, yes, yeah, me too, that they get it. Because I don't think there's anyone with a diagnosis of this that at some point hasn't thought they were a fraud, felt like they were a burden, questioned everything about themselves. And, yeah, it's important to find other people that can just sort of emotionally hold that space with you and go, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. we me. live in a world of people. We live in a world of people where ninety-five percent of them say, "Well, yeah, I, I sometimes lose my car keys." Yeah, in a trite way, like that's that's the yeah. you know, that, and, and it is you know, it's it's a, it's the, the go-to symptom that I use. But it, mm. the, to have someone say, "Well, yeah, I do that." It's, blows apart and, and and blows a hole in everything that you've shared in that assessment yeah that is so much more than the frustration of losing your car keys it defines who you are it it, it defines yeah. decisions that you made along the way so it, it is pervasive and it has mm-hmm. been persistent and by god it's problematic yeah yeah it, it, it is isn't it and it's mm. Folks, it's okay to to know that. You're listening to a professional there, and I don't mean me, I mean Andrew. You're listening to a clinical, clinical professional telling you it's okay to remember that, to recognise that. 
to know that those things have happened. So I hope I hope this episode really helps you. Again, please let us know. Leave us some some comments. Tell us what you got from it. But if there's anything I take away from it, and unfortunately I get to talk to you most days, it's that it's actually okay for it to be a problem. It's okay for it to be very, very, very bloody difficult. And you're not putting it on. Yeah. If it wasn't difficult, you wouldn't have been diagnosed with it. Even if that diagnostic letter only says, I'm diagnosing this person with ADHD. There you go. There you go. Folks, listen, that was episode eight. And hopefully you now have a better idea of what a good ADHD assessment should look like contain and what should happen after it um if you have any questions leave us a comment wherever you listen to this or watch this uh, and we will always try and respond and um if you want to join the community as it is just as i say go to whatsapp communities search for talk adhd uh or click the link that i will remember honestly to put in here other than that andrew thank you so much uh, again another Splendid episode as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we keep doing it. Uh, and I will see you hopefully next week for episode nine. Yep. Speak soon. Pleasure as always. Ha. Indeed. Indeed.